welcome to Red Lens Podcast. My name is Brad Siegel, and I will be the host of Red Lens. I'm a photographer, and this will be my photography podcast. There are already lots of other photography podcasts out there, so why should anyone listen to yet another one? This will be a political photography podcast. Aside from being a photographer, I'm a socialist and a grassroots activist, and I've been involved in music scenes as well, on and off, for decades. I take photos at a lot of protests and political events. I also love taking photos at punk shows and at other live music. In my street photography, I often try to show the contradictions, like opulent wealth and dire poverty, that coexist side by side in today's world. Which is to say that I bring my politics to my photography. Deciding what to point the lens at, what to include in the frame, and what story you want to tell is a political decision. And sometimes, photographs can help spark political consciousness or even inspire people to take action. Think of the iconic photos from the Civil Rights Movement, or searing images of refugee children face down in the water, whether Syrians trying to reach Europe or Central Americans in the Rio Grande. Think about the image of U.S. Border Patrol on horseback chasing Haitian migrants, or the image of the Vietnamese girl running from U.S. soldiers after a napalm attack. Images like this change how millions of people understand and think about the crucial political issues of the day. On this podcast, I'll have conversations with photographers that document protests and social justice movements, that document artistic and cultural movements like the punk and hip-hop scenes, and that document other movements and happenings that are either ignored or intentionally mischaracterized in the corporate media. Yeah, we'll talk about the usual photography stuff too, like gear and settings, but that won't be the main thing. So Red Lens podcast will be about photography from the perspective of a socialist and an activist. I'll usually have a guest, so you'll meet some new people and hear their stories, ideas, and thoughts. I hope you'll get something from the podcast, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Welcome to the podcast about photographing politically and the politics of photography. Welcome to Red Lens. In this first episode of Red Lens podcast, I have a conversation with my friend and comrade, Phil Ward. We had a fun conversation where we covered a lot of ground, from political movement photography to music photography to Phil's passion for abandoned buildings and spaces. We get into some interesting stories, and you'll get to hear Phil talk in detail about three of my favorite images he's taken that I picked out just for this conversation. There's a lot here, so I hope you'll dig in and enjoy it. I encourage you to check out Phil Ward's work on his website and follow him on social media at philwardphoto.com and on Instagram and Facebook at Phil Ward Photo. So let's jump right into this interview. All right, hello everyone. My name is Brad Siegel and I'm here with Phil Ward. Welcome everyone to Red Lens Podcast. We're here to have some conversations today and hopefully have a few laughs and hopefully talk about some serious things too. So yeah, I just wanted to welcome our guest today, Phil Ward. Um, Why don't you uh, introduce yourself briefly and then we can get into some questions. All right. Well, thanks, Brad, for having me on. I'm excited to do this and excited to be on your podcast. Uh, My name is Phil Ward and I'm a photographer uh, and I do several different styles of photography and most recently with Brad, uh, movement photography. So that's, you know, (laughs) that's kind of my photo thing. Right on. Well, yeah. And why don't we sort of just taking it from there? You know, we, 
I think both have a few things in common. Um, one is a longtime love of photography, which is why we're here today, and also a history, uh, even going back of before we, long before we even knew each other, you know, over the last few years, um, of a history of being involved in music scenes and uh, sort of anti-racist politics, and uh, as well as photography, you know, a lot of our photography interests, I think, tend to overlap as well. Um, yeah, do you want to just walk us through a little bit about, you know, tell us a little bit about your story, you know, where uh, where photography fits into your life and sort of uh, how you uh, got involved with photography and how that interacts with your involvement, like in the music scene and, and going to protests, uh, as well as street photography and abandoned buildings. And I don't know, maybe just a little bit, just sort of go. Sure. Well, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, and that's that, you know, I, I did a little bit of film photography when I was in high school, you know, through the classes that you could take. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I didn't pick up a camera again until 2015. So I've, I've really only been shooting, you know, for seven years now. And, uh, and what I can tell you about that was one of my friends who was a photographer was selling a cheap body and lens. And I had a catering company and a six-year-old son at the time so my thought was he's not selling it for very much money and i should probably have a decent camera for uh taking pictures of our food and for taking pictures of my son yeah i bought that camera from this guy and photography just sunk its hooks into me and it's and it's like you know it was instantly all i wanted to do and at that point in time i was driving for a car service and uh and so what i would do is i was working the night shift from nine at night until seven in the morning so i'd bring my camera and my tripod with me and like literally the first photography i learned how to do was long exposure night photography wow and you know so in the middle of the night after the bar rush was over or after the employees would go home the bar staff uh i would usually have a, a few hours to kill and so i'd just go drive my car somewhere and set up and start taking long exposure night photos and and that's where photography really got me and and ever since then, I've been trying to learn as much as I can about it uh, and and master the, you know, varying styles. But, you know, my three favorite long exposure night photography and low light photography are absolutely my favorite. And then uh, also movement photography and uh, concert photography. So the movement photography, that, that didn't really come around until George Floyd was murdered. It came around a little bit with Jamar Clark and Philando Castile. Uh, I, I got out and got some photos, but it was right after I got that first camera at a fourth precinct when, when the occupation was happening. And I got a bunch of nearly unusable, terrible photos of uh, the historic thing that was going on there. So, so that would have been 20, you know, 2015, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, it was literally within two months of me getting that camera and I'd never you know, used it after dark at that point. Uh, so I was trying to shoot handheld and on a crop frame Canon, you know, trying to, trying to pull off, you know, one thirtieth of a second <laughs> and lower handheld shots with no image stabilization. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then my gear had gotten a little bit better and I was only living about six blocks away from the governor's mansion after Philando Castile was murdered. And I went down there three or four times and and shot my first march uh when they marched right down grand avenue and got some much better photos and then you know life and family got busy for a minute and uh 
uh, you know, just like a lot of people, I just went back to living life. And then George Floyd is murdered. So before, before we get into that, I want to sort of pick up on a couple of things you've mentioned so far, if that's all right. Sure. So when you said you started first with film cameras in high school, um, and that was the same for me too, did you have a dark room that you had access to at that point? Were you developing the film and doing all that? or? Yep, yeah, I, I certainly was. And uh, that was like, that was the cool part of that is that both high schools I went to had dark rooms. And so they would, you know, check you out like, you know, a Pentax K1000 or a Sony A1. And uh, you'd, you'd buy film from the school and you'd go out and shoot and then you'd be able to come back and they taught you how to develop the film and make the images. And there was a dark room you could use after school. We had one in our high school too. And that was the first time I was exposed to any of that. And, uh, you know, I just remember it, that the the dark room was like mostly where people, you know, kids went to like make out and stuff if you know, there were people looking for a private spot in the school. But uh, that was my first time learning about developing film and making prints. I didn't do a lot of it, but I did some. And then when I went to college, I took a photography class and had access to a much better darkroom there. So that was pretty cool. But I was very similar. Like at that point, I didn't have any idea what I was doing with the camera. You know, I mm -hmm. uh, and so I was taking pictures and taking pictures at a lot of punk shows back then, but not, you know, I look at those pictures now and I have it on my to-do list at some point to scan all those in and see if there's anything salvage. Um, yeah. You know, mostly not, you know, for better or worse. But uh, yeah, and then I didn't have a camera. I mean, I had a camera, but it sat in my basement. That same camera, Canon AE-1 that I had from, from then, uh, sat in my basement until uh, then when uh, my daughter was about to be born. This was early in the days of digital cameras. We got as a gift my first digital camera. And it was, you know, one of those little compact point and shoot, not mm -hmm. great, uh, you know, all, mostly auto. And so, I, you know, along with most of the rest of the world, I kind of just started using that. And then phones started getting better cameras, started using that and sort of forgot about composition or, you know, any of that stuff. And it was snapshot. But, yeah. but so similarly, yeah, when uh, around the same time, seeing photos from the, the protests that started in that movement when sort of the Black Lives Matter slogan became uh, you know, a, a rallying cry in, in the context of Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, and then locally Jamar Clark and others that were killed. Yeah, just seeing photos by like Chris June and, and Typhi from two of the people who were documenting those movements and who did know what they were doing and were really, really good photographers. It sort of jolted me back to like, wait a minute, I used to know something about that and you know my pictures don't look anything like theirs like i got to get serious about this so was, I, I wholly blame typey for photography <laughs> because he he's he drugged me along that one day the day i met you actually you know it's funny because right when i was uh so another part of my journey back into photography in addition to you know getting a digital camera when my daughter was born was when i started biking everywhere and a friend of mine who was sort of on that same track who was biking a lot and he lived out in the bay area he started just bringing his camera along with him everywhere he was biking and you know i was going on 20 30 50 60 mile rides through some really beautiful areas and so i was like you know i'm going to start doing that too i'm going to start bringing my camera with me i should be able to get good pictures of all these amazing sunsets i'm seeing and all this stuff and it was uh just as i had those thoughts i went to the dog park in saint paul and ran into typhi there and so i just started like bombarding him with questions about photography, you know, like, how can I get better pictures? You know, what should I, and, uh, 
you know, so I can blame him a little bit too. And for folks who don't know who Typhi is, I'm going to interview him uh, soon for the podcast as well. So you'll get to hear all about his journey as well. So yeah, it sounds like uh, both of us have some sort of uh, things in common in terms of our path with photography, starting in high school and dropping it for a while, picking it back up. Punk rock shows. Exactly. When kids come into the picture and then when the movement reached another high point. And, and, you know, I always took pictures like with my phone and or with my little compact camera all through that time. I've been going to protests and organizing protests. And I always was one of the people who would take a few snapshots and upload them to Facebook. But I look at, at the ones now up, at, up before that point, you know, with 2015 or so, uh, or for me a little later. Um, and they're just the quality's not good, you know. And uh, so that, I guess, brings us back to where you started to leave off when you sort of jumped back in full force with movement photography when George Floyd was made. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those, where were you and what were you doing moments, you know, that you'll always remember. I'll always remember that I was sitting on my couch in exactly the same place I'm sitting right now when that article popped up on my phone. And I, I just remember the shock and outrage and you know, spending pretty much the entire day because it was still back in quarantine times, trying to find out more. And and then the the unrest happened and I didn't leave the house to go out and shoot any of the unrest. I don't I don't know if it was fear. I don't know if it was me not wanting to, you know, ask Karen, my wife, if that was okay, or if it was the pandemic, you know, or a mix of all of it. But you know, I, I did the the keyboard warrior thing for those first three days and posted as much about it as I could and and re reposted live streams that were up from Unicorn Riot and and then shortly after that, Typhi was like, Nah, man, you gotta get you gotta come out, you gotta come out and shoot a march. And I put him off for a minute, you know, probably for another month or so. And and uh and then finally he's like, All right, dude, there's gonna be this uh, march for Elijah McLean and I want you to be there. And so I committed to it. And, you know, I, I knew that my photography skills were up to the task because I'd shot plenty of events and all that. But this was like an entirely new arena of photography. And I didn't know anybody. And, you know, even as a photographer, I have like a, a hefty disdain for the middle-aged white guy with a camera. <laughs> and and for better or worse, I look exactly like that middle-aged white dude with a camera. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I was a little bit nervous about how I was going to be received, but I was like, well, you know, I'm going to be there with Typey and, you know, Typey knows a lot of people in the movement, so it'll be fine. And and so I went and I think that was probably a pretty good march to have be like my first really big one because it was huge and it was energetic and it was awesome. And I, I feel like some of my best images that I've gotten since I started doing movement photography came from that march. Was that that and was I, the one that started by the Viking Stadium and went across the Stone Arch Bridge, right? Yeah. When it was hot as balls. And that was a great one, too, just because of where we were, right? You could get pictures of the march, but with the Minneapolis skyline or with the river, you know, you know, I I think both of us have taken both of us have taken millions of pictures of that skyline by itself or, you know, the Stone Arch Bridge. But this is just a whole nother level when you've already you know how to take pictures in those places. And then suddenly you have this incredibly powerful crowd of people protesting for justice it's murder plopped down yeah, in the like there was, when they were when everybody was coming down that hill right by the the downtown side of the stone arch bridge 
and there was just you know literally thousands of people stretched out and it was the the incline was just steep enough so that you could see everyone going all the way up going back for as far as you can see until the horizon line and that that was when it just like hit me and i was like whoa this is so cool and that's the kind of stuff that having done a lot of other types of photography and really developed an eye for composition and an eye for angles and also light, of course, because you've said you've done a lot with long exposure and night photography, so you're used to looking at light and how is the light interacting. with. Then you plop yourself in the middle of a protest and you're, you've got the skills to sort of know what you were just saying, like, ooh, this is a spot where I'm going to be able to create some. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll always be thankful that I, you know, I always do everything backwards and do it the hard way and learn the hard aspect of photography for because in terms of night, low light and stuff like that. Yeah, going from doing primarily low light and long exposure, you know, shooting during the daytime is not very difficult. (laughs) Yeah, I've already been doing that. Yeah. And I was very similar, you know, because when I started bringing my camera with me when I was on my bike, it would be sunset stuff or coming home from work in the winter after dark and downtown, you know, with the sub with the light rail and with the river trying to get the reflections on the river. And yeah, so I started with that really difficult stuff, too, also with a very cheap crop sensor camera that wasn't able to get as great of images. But but yeah, once you sort of figure that stuff out, you're in a, a pretty good spot to go to a protest and be able to get some good pictures well and a lot of also in you know in the winter like the so that was summer 2020 when the wave of protests after the the cops murdered george floyd and but the protests that happened basically almost daily went for quite a while through the summer and into the winter too when it's dark at 4 4 30 and so then you're doing a lot of photos at night in the dark which again having that experience doing night photography doing low light photography and having it at, by that point, it sounds like acquired the gear that allows you to get some decent exposures. Um, mm-hmm. But even just being able to look, you know, like now when I first started doing that, I, you know, I was just snapping shots wherever. And then after a while, you sort of start to look for where the street light is and set yourself up so that you can get people as they're passing under the street light or use yep. the, the ambient light that's there or know when, if and when to use a flash. And maybe we should talk about flash at some point because I know you have opinions about that. But yeah, so in this process, so you went to that protest uh, for Elijah McClain, and that was, I think, where we first met as well, if I remember correctly. And out of that, we decided, I don't remember how long after that, to start some sort of a a new association of photographers, for lack of a better word, to because when there's something that is sort of a world-shaking event, like the murder of George Floyd and the massive protests and the burning of the third precinct, you suddenly had hordes of photographers at protests who nobody, the organizers had never seen before and no, didn't know who anyone was. And so the, that idea started, we started talking about that, right, of like, let's start something where those of us who have a, a longer history in the movement and know each other can come together and have a group that the organizers have a relationship with and, and know who we are. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because you've really played a, a key role in building Move for Justice. Yeah. You know, like not long after that, maybe a month, month or so after that, after that, that one March, I pretty much attended every single March I could find every, every one of them that I could get to, I, I went to. And, uh, well, let me interrupt just for a second, because this is actually important, right? The, I think the, the reason you were able to do that is, you know, the, the pandemic, the context of the pandemic, right? I think is really yep. important. Um, 
And so do you want to talk about that? Because, you know, you talked about you sort of started getting into photography and then life got in the way, work, family, et cetera. Um, so my understanding is you weren't working at that point. Is that right? Like what, what happened with yeah, your work? Yeah, I had been laid off. Because of the pandemic. My job at the panda at the airport from, because of the pandemic. And, you know, had been laid off since March of 20, that was March of 2020. Mm-hmm. And I didn't go back to work until May of 2021. And so I found myself uh, with a vast amount of spare time and, you know, had just gone to this March and I had, I had nothing stopping me from, from doing as much of that as I wanted to. And, and I'm also one of those people that I've, I, I can relax, you know, and I spent a bunch of time relaxing, but I got to be doing something, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, totally. my brain needs to be active and, and my body needs to be active a little bit too. And so I'd go to these marches and, and it's slowly, you know, the idea started to dawn on me that there's a million photographers and nobody knew who they were. And I was lucky because I could say that I had been at fourth precinct, even though it was just a tiny bit. And, you know, so that I had been doing movement photography technically for a few years, uh, but I knew you and I knew Typhi and I, I had gone to shoot like Typhi and I would go shoot long exposure night photography you know, for a while, we were doing it every single week, all summer long for a few years. And, you know, through that, he would bring Chris June with him, or he would bring King with him. And so I got to know them just a little bit. And, you know, so all of us are, you know, you, me, Typhi, Chris June, King, Louis Tran, uh, and eventually Emma, we were all kind of hanging together at these protests anyway. And, you know, as a conversation started about, we should start something so that movement organizers can know who we are and we should have like a press badge of some kind so that when organizers see that press badge and they see that it's what ended up being move for justice news they know that they can trust that photographer and that it's a movement photographer and not somebody just trying to make a buck from the new york times or the washington post that flew in from new york three days ago or you know in some cases that i've seen you know the photographers from alpha news trying to you know, sneak in. And Alpha News being a far right-wing outlet that has as a goal to try and discredit. Yep. So that and a, and a desire to not get arrested as well, you know, because <laughs> when the when the police see you with a press pass on, I'm not saying they can't arrest you, but they're much less likely to arrest you if you have a press badge. The, the nice thing about that ended up being that there's no way for them to tell you that your press badge is not legitimate. <laughs> and we can, we can talk about how that played out on... Uh, November 4th, 2020, uh, 2020, was that 2020? Oh, no. in front of BCPD. Are you talking about in front of, no, that wasn't in front of BCPD. Uh, sorry, I was talking about on the highway when there was the mass oh, arrest. Yeah. So let me go back and just ask a, a question about when doing this movement photography, we've both talked about how, especially when something big happens, there are just tons of photographers there and videographers and everyone there has a cell phone and at some point in the in a march snaps a few pictures or does a snapchat or you know does a, a quick video for a reel or you know a story on instagram or whatever you know everyone there is documenting protests now. so what's even the point like why bring all this heavy expensive camera gear to a protest to document something that's already pretty thoroughly documented like what why because my photos are better than theirs <laughs> I like your answer. That's very honest. And that's, and that's the thing you, you can, yes. But why I, mean, I could probably, I could probably run around with my iPhone and take photos, but 
it why is it important? It why is it important to have really high quality photos of these events? Because iPhones don't convey the same gravity of the situation as real cameras do. And people will argue with you about that up and down, but the, the difference is undeniable in my eyes. If I take a close up photo of somebody with my 70 to 200 and I have the compression and the blown out background, there's no way an iPhone can match that. And it's going to be tack sharp and beautiful. And then I bring it home and I work it in Lightroom and make it look even better. And with the cameras that we're using these days, like, you know, you could basically blow that up to the size of putting on the side of a building with the yeah. resolution. I have yet to see, I suppose there probably is a couple of phone cameras out there that are 46 megapixels now, but my main camera for protests is a Sony a7R three that's 42 megapixels. And the thing I like about it is that the image stabilization is good. The autofocus is fast and the, and the image sizes are huge, which means that if I need to crop in on something, I can without losing too much information. Totally. And you said you, you know, can blow it up on the side of a building. And actually some of the photos that you took and that we took were blown up on the, the side of a building uh, for the display at Hennepin Theater Trust. So you've been proven correct on that. <laughs> so when you take pictures at protests, what are you mostly focusing on? Are, are you, to take a step back, I agree with everything you just said. And I think what I'm trying to do when I take photos at protests and other actions is make the movement irresistible, like make people want to be part of it. I see those images. If you're lucky in a, in a lifetime, you may get one or two images that actually like become, go viral and help transform the politics in our city mm -hmm. or our country. There are those few images, right, that actually change the consciousness of millions of people. And so that's always a goal, right? Trying to get that image, just in general, trying to make the seem appealing and powerful because it is, and we can, we, we have the ability to, um, yeah, as, as photographers, we, we capture th that emotion and that power. And that's not something your average iPhone user is going to be able to do. I mean, it's the composition, it's the moment, it's the way you shoot it. It's what you're, you know, the lens you're shooting it with is, I mean, all of these things combine to create powerful images, you know, and that, and that's been the case throughout the history of photography and protest. I mean, you look at the photos from from marches from the 60s and like the power that some of those images convey is just unreal, you know? And I, I mean, yeah, that's our, that's always our goal is to, is to capture some spirit of that kind of feeling about your own photos to be able to capture the next, you know, for lack of a better term, the next Pulitzer winning photo of something that's happening. And, but that's not the main focus for me, man. <laughs> right. You know, there's always that hope that, that you'll go viral because then maybe some donations that come in to help you upgrade your gear or something. But the, the goal is using my platform, you know, using my Instagram, which already has, you know, over 7,000 followers to amplify the voices of the people that I'm taking photos of. And, and, and the re whole reason I started coming to protest with my camera was because it's something that I could do. It was something physical and like tangible that I could do to help, you know, exactly. Yeah. I'm I'd good. At, I'm good at making photographs and I'm better than a lot of people around that just show up with their Canon rebels or whatever. And I wanted to make sure that the people that were organizing these events had good photos. And I wanted to do that with other like-minded photographers. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's yes. Getting recognition is nice and all, but I, I'm just doing it to do my part and and to contribute something that not everybody can contribute. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I always have felt really through my whole life since I've gotten involved in both the music scene and in politics that I need something to do when I'm at a protest or when I'm at a, a concert. You know, I, I don't like just standing there. I feel like I want to contribute in some way. And so with both in the music scene and in politics, I got involved in and I'm still involved in organizing protests and helping make them happen. So I have and then I have actual tasks I have to do there. But if I'm not organizing a protest and I go like I want something to do there. And yeah, same thing you said, having my camera there, I'm able to make a real contribution. So can mm -hmm. you tell me like when you're at a protest, what are you mostly focusing on? You do pro protest photos. Are you mostly trying to focus on crowd shots that show the whole scene, focusing mainly on the, the speakers, the ones with the microphone at the front or what are you trying to focus on? And then relatedly, there's a when the uprising happened when George Floyd was murdered and the third precinct was burned. Those were my photos that went the most viral was that first night. And, and I was out there those nights, the, the first night when uh, before the precinct burned, but when the first march went to the precinct, it was huge. And I posted those photos and they went really viral. And, and I started getting lots of messages from people I don't know saying, you need to be blurring out the faces of people. This is really irresponsible to post photos from protests showing identities of people. So I want to touch on that controversy maybe a little bit. But first, like, yeah, what are you trying to, what, what do you mostly focus on when you do photos at protests or is it a little bit of everything? Well, much to my surprise, you know, if you were to ask me about, you know, a lot of other kind of photography, I'd tell you that the most versatile lens you could have on you is a 24 to 70. And I rarely use my 24-70 at all when it comes to protest photography. That's funny. That's I don't even bring that one anymore either. It's funny. Yeah, it that used to be the only one I would bring. Now I don't bring it at all. Yep. I, I so either shoot with a 16-35 to 35 or a 70-200. to 200. That's it. Exact same. Uh, Why? That's, that's all. Well, because the 70-200 to 200 gives you reach wherever you need it. And the 16-35 to 35 gives you up to a, a street photography point of view at 35 and it gives you the huge wide crowd shots at 16. So the other thing, everybody in the universe with their iPhones and their Canon Rebels and their news crew cameras, everybody is always trying to take shots of the speakers. They're all trying to get right up on them. And so my strategy generally is to get as close as I can with my 70 to 200 and just get a few shots of each speaker. But I'm, I'm not trying to be like, in the front row, sticking my camera in somebody's face. You know, there's plenty of people already doing that. And if I'm not live streaming, I don't think any, first of all, I don't think anyone who's uh, not live streaming should be all the way up there like that. That's where the live streamers and the video people should be. And I think photographers should be back at least a few rows because we can get what we need from three rows away. If you have a, uh, a long lens with you, yeah. For if you have a long lens with you and if you're shooting protests, you should probably get a long lens. And then I always try to get a couple of those big wide crowd shots just to convey the the enormity of the crowd or in a lot of cases, try to make it look bigger than it was, you know, <laughs> what are some I also think that's my job. Yeah, I, no, I do the same thing. What, what you know, sometimes I'm at a smaller protest and I first ha sort of have a composition where you have like, I don't know, it, let's say it's 100 people and you know, that is a lot of people, but when you take the street and there's like a four lane road, you know, it, it doesn't look as big. Right. So oh. I'll have a composition where it just looks like it's a handful of people and then like a bunch of cars behind them. I'm like, you know, that doesn't really convey what I want to convey, you know, because a hundred people coming out to protest this injustice is actually significant and I don't want it to uh, come off as insignificant. So how do you, how do you do that? Well, in a purely technical aspect, I run way the hell ahead of everybody and I shoot them all with the, with the 70 to 200 because 
the compression makes it seem like there's a lot more people there. And that's like the easiest trick for that because you're, you know, maybe only shoot the two lanes that they're marching in and shoot it with a, with a 70 to 200, close to the 200 end of it as you can from a distance and get that compression. And that's where I agree. That's where you really see the difference in, in gear. And obviously gear is not everything. We can talk more about gear later, but with a phone camera, you're not going to be able to really get a picture that focuses in on the crowd in the same way. And, you know, I, I guess there's ways you could do it, but it's a lot harder. A lot harder. My favorite thing to do at, at marches and protests is to get in with the crowd and take photos of people that are, that are just there doing their thing. And, you know, after you go to a few, they get, everyone pretty much gets to know you a little bit if they're around much. And all of a sudden you're not having nearly as much of the, why did you just take my photo kind of thing? I don't know. I, I like to catch all the stuff that nobody else, I try to catch the stuff that nobody else is looking for. You know, yeah. I mean, there's, like I said, there's a million people taking photos of the people speaking and that, that'll always be the focus and that's always the way it'll be. You know, so I like to get the background shots. One thing I like, and maybe we can get to this when uh, we have a few photos of yours that we picked out to talk about a little bit, but there's a podcast that I, I listen to, a photography podcast, and the host of it always talks about how every shot needs a hero. You know, every shot you have should have a hero. And I guess that's sort of figure out what that means by just saying it, but to draw it out a little bit at a protest, what I like in terms of the the holy grail of protest photos for me, I think, is where you have, you can see a crowd maybe blurred out a little bit, uh, you know, maybe going back a ways, but there's some person, usually one person, sometimes two or three people, like right in, in the front of the picture that are, where you can see their passion, you can see their emotion, they're, they're chanting, their fist is up, something like that, and that's sort of the hero of the shot. So you get both, that's the, the ideal, right, where you, to me, where you can get focus really in on one person who is very powerful and see the whole crowd with them, the signs mm -hmm. and people behind them. And, you know, I, I'm thinking of specific ones. You know, when I say that, there's one I took at that Elijah McLean protest that uh, I think did that. And, and then even better is with the picture I have in mind that I took, it's the Viking Stadium is in the background, too. So that places a particular place. Yep. And, and I always try to do that, too, when possible have something in the photo that places in a place, whether it's a, a skyline or something. That doesn't happen in every photo, but, you know, at a lot of protests, you so, somewhere along the march, you're going to see the skyline in the background. You're a, a street sign that says Lake Street or that says North Plymouth Avenue or whatever um, mm -hmm. that places that. Yeah, so why don't we then talk about, you made reference to that sometimes people don't want their pictures taken at, at a protest. Um, mm -hmm. what, what do we, what do you, how do you handle that? I apologize and I delete it in front of them. I agree. Yeah, I think that's important. And I think that is something that separates us as movement photographers from the sort of corporate media photographers who I, I think don't use that same ethic. Um, no, I don't think so either. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll literally apologize and then walk over with my camera and show them the LCD on the back of it. And I'll let them watch me physically delete it off the card. So there's no question. Have you had that happen very often that people don't want tell you they don't want? I think probably, I bet you 20 times over the, okay. you know, a significant amount of times. And that's interesting. And I'm totally okay with that. And, you know, I, I want to go back to what you were saying about catching hell for even taking photos and being like, you shouldn't be taking photos. And, you know, my argument for that is there's a million people out there taking photos with cameras, with, with iPhones, with Android phones. There's news crews 
if you're if you are at a protest, you are being filmed. Every There's business you walk by on the march route has a surveillance camera <laughs> that's exactly. getting you as well. There, there is no two ways about it. Just because the camera that I'm holding costs, you know, eight grand and it's not a phone that costs a thousand dollars doesn't change the fact that you're already being filmed. And so I don't I don't subscribe to that particular line of thought because cameras are so prevalent in society these days that everyone literally walks around with one in their pocket all day long. Where I will draw the line is taking and posting photos of people that are actively committing a crime. Yeah, I, like, I agree. Like if you can, if you can be arrested, if you could use my photo as evidence to have somebody arrested, I'm not posting it. Yep. I might take it. I've, I've probably got several hundred photos that, that could allegedly be used as evidence. Allegedly. <laughs> the allegedly. key word, allegedly. I, I may allegedly have those photos, uh, but you'll never get me to admit to it. No, and I think I look at it the same way. And like I said, it came up when my photos went viral from that first night at uh, the third precinct. And it was a, a legal organized protest that marched from George Floyd Square down to the third precinct. And at a certain point, once it was at the third precinct, the things took a turn and graffiti started going up. Windows started being broken. The cops started tear gassing. I don't know which of those two things happened first. I would guess the cops started acting crazy first and you know then king's king's live stream for that whole march yeah right up until they banned him that an hour after you guys got the third precinct was when his live stream stopped because the facebook banned him for wow. a month but yeah, yeah i watched that whole thing start so so i posted photos from that and and that night and then so where i draw the line i posted photos that night because it was a a, a regular march like any other march in public and Interestingly, most of the people, because it went viral, a lot of the people who were in the pictures saw themselves in them and tagged themselves. I had one person contact me and ask me to take down the photo they were in. And I think it was because it was a non-flattering photo, more so than because it was a photo mm -hmm. of them at that protest. And just one. But there were other people who weren't there, who weren't in any of the photos, who were putting out that sort of point of view that you should not post photos from protests because uh, you know, the cops will use them to whatever. And where I, I and I agree with the way you did the dividing line. On, on the third night when the precinct burned, I was there taking pictures. I got a lot of pictures. I got some amazing pictures that you know I, I would love nothing more than to share unedited. Um, we'll but, never see the light of day. <laughs> but but those pictures I did post them, but I blurred and and otherwise you know concealed faces and uh, identifying marks like tattoos because that had been the the police had on their sound system declared in an unlawful assembly once that happens then it's exactly what you said the the law enforcement will did and continued to and will scour every photo online to try to identify the people in them so they can go after them and so that's why i made that choice i, I did post photos but i concealed identity you know again it's there were hundreds of cameras there the people who were in a lot of my photos were doing selfies and posting stuff on Snapchat, you know, all night. Um, maybe they weren't thinking through the reasons they shouldn't do that in the moment. So that's why I didn't post photos of the unidentified, you know, un, uh, without concealing identities in some way. But yeah, it's hard because there are just some amazing photos. And, you know, there are some of photos that Chris June took that night and, you know, he made the choice to post them. There's one in particular I'm, I'm thinking of where there were, once the precinct was, once the cops left it and Protesters, oh, some of the protesters the breached, breached, breached the precinct and went in and brought some stuff out. Right. There was like a 
police utility belt or whatever with stuff on it that a few people were holding and he got a the just amazingly powerful picture of people holding that and you know they they asked him to take that picture you know so that if i remember correctly is the reason he stuck by posting that and sharing that and without mm-hmm. identities can um you know but yeah that i went inside too with my camera and got some pictures inside and uh very much concealed identities but i think it is uh you know it is a important question and I agree with where you talked about drawing that dividing line on if the police can use those pictures to try to bring charges against someone for something, then that's where I take a lot more. Yeah. Like when we were down on Nicollet Mall. Yeah. We should talk about that night a little bit too. <laughs> but um, what, uh, yeah, why don't we talk about that right now? So when was that? That was in the summer of 2020, maybe yep. June or July. So a couple months after George Floyd had been murdered. And it was, do it you was want to run the same through day it? as the March for, March for Lionel Lewis. There had already been a march, right? And so we were already, a lot of us already sort of had our camera gear with us, I think, right? Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, we we had already shot the March for Lionel Lewis, which happened earlier. And then we just kept on hearing that there was something happening over on 7th and Nicollet and that there was another march uh, for for something or other. But we had like literally no information and uh, I had a friend in from out of town, Alex, uh, who was in town from New Orleans and wanted to, you know, come shoot that first march. And then, you know, we get over to 7th and Nicollet and it's just a completely different situation than, uh, than I thought we were walking because, you know, everything, you know, it was it was messed up and nobody could figure out what was going on. And, you know, they were saying that the police shot and killed another black man. And then some people were saying that didn't happen. And it, Look until Nakima got down there to sort it all out, and and then it didn't really get sorted out. Yeah, so people had started to gather there because, right, the rumors had circulated online that the cops had killed a black man in a parking ramp at 7th and Nicollet. People started just going there, and this is, of course, right in the aftermath of George Floyd being murdered, and so people were irate and outraged. Um, yep. And the cops were, as now that more official reports are coming out, that tell us what we already knew, having been on the ground, the cops were acting crazy and trigger happy with tear gas and chemical irritants and other things um, to try to disperse people. But yeah, so me, you, Typhi, and then once we were there, there were other people there. But I remember just even trying to get to the area, the cops had already created a perimeter and were trying to not let people to the area. We somehow uh, got through. But yeah, I because I hadn't been prepared to go to a protest, I didn't have any gear with me for like goggles to protect my eyes. I didn't have anything. And once we got through and the, the cops were uh, very trigger happy and I was taking a, a, I was like kneeling down in the street and taking a picture of the police, but from some distance, I wasn't like right in their face by any means. And one of them ran up to me and sprayed me in the eyes with a chemical irritant. Thankfully, Phil, uh, <laughs> you and Typhi were there to sort of guide me the rest of the night because I couldn't see for at least a half hour at all. And then Corey, one of the street medics, helped flush my eyes out. And that whole network of support that developed those protests was incredible. And the street medics, the marshals that developed through all of those experiences and us as some of the photographers and videographers documents that so we all knew each other right but mm-hmm. i don't know that that's just one of those stories that i think all of us have those stories from being there with our cameras day after day at all these protests where you know we've seen some stuff you know and and experienced some stuff firsthand i know you've I talked about on how, how messed up it was to try and get out of there that night 
you know that's right because what i what i remember about it is uh you were you were blind at this point but I, we were standing in front of city center and it was you and me and Typhi and alex mm-hmm. and Corey. and i just remember looking up looking east on 7th street and just seeing just seeing the line of riot cops marching towards us <laughs> yeah. and, and i was just like oh shit and this was like right after Locker had gotten looted and there was cop cars at Hennepin too. So they were, they were kind of trying to kettle people and literally the only way to go was down that alley right by next to where JJ flash used to be. That's a, the Thai restaurant now. And so we're all like everybody where everybody is getting funneled down this, what I've always referred to as the scary alley in downtown Minneapolis. Cause that one's, <laughs> it just kind of has that, uh, kind of feeling to it especially when there's like you know dumb shit going on like that and so we're typhi has got a bad back so it was definitely me and alex you know you had your arm around both of us and we're helping you down the down the alley and typhi's leading and we get up to the next corner and we are just trying to get back to typhi's minivan and every time we turn the cops would force us to go a different direction <laughs> that's further right. away from the van and uh and like it was scary because it really felt like everywhere we went, the cops would only let us turn one way. There was no choices. And I'm like, what's going to be at the end of this ride? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but, but then somehow we managed to get, I think we ended up having to get like eight or 10 blocks away from seventh and Nicolet before we could actually go East and get around it and get back to the cars. But yeah, that was like, yeah, that was like my first, my first involvement with police being like they are. So let, continuing on that thread, why don't we jump real quick to Brooklyn Center after Dante Wright was murdered and there was really a week of every every night, night after night, confrontations in the street in front of the precinct in Brooklyn Center where the cops were night after night tear gassing and beating people and doing similar maneuvers to push people towards one direction and then another direction. Anyway, I know you were out there a lot, as I was as well. Yeah, let's just hear some of your stories from Brooklyn Center. No, man. That's, like, honestly the most terrifying situation I've ever been in in my life that week, you know? And I had to, like, force myself to go there every day. I had to force myself, and I'd get there, and I'd I'd sit in my car, and I'd try and find a reason to turn around and leave, you know? Because there's nothing sane about being out there. There's nothing safe about being out there. Press badge or no, I mean, yes, you had... You had more protections with a press badge, uh, even though they were blatantly and on purpose attacking press yep. out there on the daily. You know, so I, I'd sit in that car and I'd get, I'd get, you know, I'd get out and I'd go back to my trunk and I'd get my vest and my, you know, I'd put on all the crap. And let, let me interrupt there just for a second. So for me, after what happened at Seventh and Nicollet that we were just talking about, that was when I finally. I made an appeal online to for people to donate some money so I could get some real gear to protect myself in the situation. So, yep. you know, some good goggles, a gas mask, a, a vest to protect projectiles shot at me. Mm-hmm. And by that point, by the time of Brooklyn Center, I think all of us had acquired that equipment, right? Yep. Because we yep, had all everyone. had those experiences by that point of being gassed, having projectiles shot at us. So yeah, so that's what you're talking about. When you're talking about getting geared up, that's that. What gear did you have? Went through it. Yep, uh, I used a skateboard helmet <laughs> uh, just because my thought was if I catch a bullet in the head, if I don't have like if I don't have the actual Kevlar Army issue helmet, 
I'm going to be dead anyway. So I was kind of basically just wanting to protect my head against, you know, nightsticks, bottles, light projectiles, what have you. Uh, and then I had a full face gas mask. I had two of them, actually. I had the prepper military style one with the super expensive filters <laughs> yep. that Chris June recommended. And the field of view on that one, if you're a photographer, is pretty crappy. Uh, so what I ended up going with was a like top of the line full face 3M respirator that has much cheaper filters and you know is basically just a big huge sheet of plexiglass so that you can see around you and uh, is also rated for impact because it's it's made to be used in like a workshop uh, and then depending on how I was feeling that day I would either put the rifle plates or not into uh, my bulletproof vest from safe life defense and that's because without the plates it protects against certain types of bullets but not against other types yes uh without the plates in it it'll stop everything up to like handguns and shotguns but if you're talking about high velocity rifles it will not stop that but with the plates in it will stop everything and just as a reminder or maybe for people who don't know or remember this there there's the projectiles that police are shooting at but at the crowd but then during the occupation of the fourth precinct after the police murdered jamar clark about a couple weeks into it some white supremacists random people came and with guns to the the fourth precinct and actually shot at and succeeded at shooting a few of the protesters and so that's another potential risk right is random racists who read about this stuff online and get worked up and decide to go commando and open fire yep. that's honestly what i was most worried about and that's the reason why i got my best is i was much less worried about being killed by the police than i was by being killed by some white supremacist you know with a rifle 100 yards away <laughs> you know or I, I, at least i thought that it would be a lot less likely that uh the brooklyn center police department and the state troopers were actually going to open fire on us with live rounds it seemed much more likely that white supremacists would show up out of thin air and that they would be the ones that did that. So, and, and, you know, it's not a terrible idea to still have that vest for rubber bullets and what have you. Although from what I hear, the rubber bullets can actually crack the plate and then it costs a bunch of money to replace it. But, and just, you know, taking a step back and thinking how, how wild this is, just where this country is at right now, that in order to show up as a photographer with a legitimate media organization to take pictures at a protest against the police killing someone, you have to take all of these precautions because these things, we've all experienced these things doing this work. It, I think says a lot about the state of this country. It does. And and don't forget radios. We all had radio, you know, you gotta be able to get in contact with each other. And, you know, part of my kit was a, a gunshot trauma first aid kit. You know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't have things like band-aids in my first aid kit. I had things like chest seals and tourniquets and 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 like, you know, the the industrial EMT quality shears for cutting people's clothing off of them or, or what have you. And yeah, you know, I mean, the people who are uh experts in in those types of fields say a tourniquet is the most important thing you can have with you in uh in case of the zombie apocalypse or uh, you yeah. know, unrest or you know. you know, so it's like, you know, the People, people were constantly getting hurt around us. There was one night in front of BCPD where the crowd was split into two. One was down by, down further past the police station by that small church. And then the other one, other crowd was right by that gate that was like kind of the main focus that first night. 
and uh, I did I did a lot of I actually did very little photography during that week. I was mostly live streaming because uh, Louie and I would switch off every other day with live streaming because it was too much to go there every single day and be there for like seven or nine hours live streaming. And, you know, so I was like I was walking from the group by the gate down to where there was like, you know, 500 state troopers. And I was just walking with my little, you know, handle for the for my phone live streaming and you know, had all my stuff on and had, you know, it said press in huge letters across my front and my back on my vest. And, and you can actually see it in my live stream. If I go back and look at it where they fire a flashbang at me, I'm the only person within like 75 feet Yeah. and they fired a flashbang and it went off like, you know, somewhere right over my head. And, uh, and I didn't know that you could do this, but you can actually jump and crouch and fart all at the same time. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Which is what happened to me. The things you learned. And, uh, and you know, I, I swear to God that flashbang had to have been 10 feet over my head because it was so damn loud. Uh, it scared wow. the crap out of me. And, you know, and then you hear rubber bullets hitting the ground around you. And, you know, so when they started, when other journalists started saying that they were targeting press, uh, I had no problem with agreeing that agreeing with that that's for sure you know and they were they were brutal out there man you know yeah. there was three or four different agencies all working out there together and when brooklyn center the mayor of brooklyn center told bcpd that they couldn't uh, attack press or use chemical irritants or whatever anymore they stopped using them but the hennepin county sheriff sure as shit didn't and neither did the state troopers and every time somebody would tell one of those groups of cops out there that they couldn't use that stuff anymore somebody else would just start using it that hadn't been told they couldn't yet yeah i was uh kneeling down taking a photo there sort of like at something nicolet and uh was hit in the leg by the cops with something i still don't to this day don't know what it was it didn't puncture my skin so you know i i don't know what that means but it hurt <laughs> uh i'm by far not the only one there was uh vic from uh the minnesota Immigrant rights action committee was i'm sure you remember shot right in the eye you know it looked really grisly and was speaking out against that from that day. And there were just dozens of people with very similar. It was wild. It was wild. Well, why don't we go to talking a little bit about something you talked about at the very beginning, but we haven't gotten that into it. Your photography of abandoned buildings, abandoned spaces. I'm really interested to hear more about that. And then, after that, then after that, we can go through three photos that I, I'd love to hear you talk about. So yeah, you you do a lot of photography in abandoned locations like old abandoned buildings or places that look really cool but maybe a little dangerous. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that photography. Why are you attracted to those places? What are you trying to capture? And uh, just tell us a little bit more about it. I just love it, man. It's an adventure. It's a uh, well. First of all, you're not supposed to be there, and uh, <laughs> that adds its own thrill, you know. And you have to figure out how to get in, and and it's like it's like going into a time capsule like my favorite place i've been so far in this country to do abandoned photography is new orleans because there is so much stuff down there that's abandoned from from katrina oh yeah uh my two favorite places i've been down there are i got into the abandoned six flags down there wow and uh and that was just wild i have like i have some amazing photos from there and just watch it you know documenting the devastation of of that hurricane and you can still see the you can see the water line on all the walls and all the buildings still and 
I think the thing I like about abandoned photography is that it, it feels like you're walking around in like a post-apocalyptic universe and there's trash everywhere and everything's wrecked and there's graffiti and I don't know. I just, I, I love the way that feels. I love the fact that there's never anybody else in those buildings. Uh, another have, place you ever in inco- have you ever encountered people, encountered people there? Whether like oh, yeah, you'll encounter people from time or... to time. And uh, it's usually cool. Yeah, but the thing that you also have to understand is, is your own spatial awareness because you are by yourself. I would always recommend going with one other person at least. I don't always follow that rule, you know? So it's been apparent to me that I'm in this huge abandoned building that somebody, if they wanted to, probably could kill me and nobody would find my ass forever. <laughs> and and I'm doing this while carrying around thousands of dollars worth of camera gear. Right. So I usually carry like mace, you know, whenever I'm in an abandoned building, I usually have mace on me. What are your favorite places here in the in the Twin Cities area, if you're able to say? Sure. There's a there's an abandoned ammunition factory that's in Arden Hills that's amazing. So it was an ammunition factory like through World War II, is that right? And then closed yep. down sometime after that? It did. And it used to be huge and sprawling. And now it's down to just like one set of buildings. Because when they were planning on building the Viking Stadium, one of the places they were, one of the sites they were looking at was that site. That's right. And so in preparation to try and get the stadium built there, they knocked down like the majority of the buildings that were out there. There's also, and so so it's a whole bunch of buildings over like, I don't remember how many square miles, but so it's, it's a, it was a huge area. I mean, it's still, you still have to, I've never been there, but my understanding is you have to walk pretty far to, you know, get to a the buildings. Ways, yeah. Yeah. So what, what does it look like when you, when you get into this place, it's a one level bullet factory and, it, and it's, it, it's shaped kind of like a fork and has like one main building and it's got three long buildings going off of it. And then there's, there's what I like to call above ground tunnels there. And it's like these like corrugated plastic tunnels uh, built on wood frames that connect a bunch of other buildings around the grounds together. So you're like, you know, you're walking around through all these, I don't know, I guess three season hallway kind of deals or whatever. But what I think is the coolest part about it is that uh, before the general public figured out that they could get in there, like a bunch of the the better graffiti artists from Minneapolis got out there. And not so much now because uh, you have, it's the place has been overrun with teenagers, so it's been trashed. And every every decent graffiti piece has a penis painted on it or- That's annoying. You know, something super stupid. But like the first time I went out there, it was just this huge, awesome World War II era factory that had all these beautiful graffiti pieces painted all over it. Like a and museum of amazing graffiti pieces. Yeah, because it, it was like, at that point in time, you had to get over a fence to get there, and it was in the middle of an army base, you know? So you had to sneak onto government land to even get to this place. And and so you could go out there. If you were a graffiti artist, I'm assuming it was awesome because you could go out there and take as long as you wanted on whatever you wanted to do, you know? So there was really like, all these beautiful pieces that had like massive, you know, attention to detail. And, you know, it's, it's kind of sad the way it looks these days because people like knock the walls down and, you know, tag their crappy little tags over these pieces that clearly took hours and hours to make. But it's fun. It's kind of like my, it's one of my favorite places to go because I can be in the middle of this complex and know that there's nobody within two miles of me. So that's kind of where I go for my me time. I'll just go out there with my camera and walk around and see if I can find something new I haven't taken a photo of yet. Amazing. 
Well, why don't we tra uh, transition now then into looking at a photo that you took. And I think this one is not from the ammunition factory. It's from uh, the Hams Brewery. So, oh, that one, that place is so cool too. That right, place so, is really hard to get into. All right, I have the photo on the screen here. Why don't you describe the photo if you, you said you know what it is? Yep, it's the, uh, so that's from the very top floor of the Hams Brewery. And what you're seeing is, this is like the main brew house where all of the huge copper vats of beer used to be brewed and all of the, all of the vats, all the tanks are gone. And so what you're left with is huge ginormous holes in the floor everywhere you look. And those are the circles then that are empty. Yep. Like. That's the circles that you can see through. And it's not the most dangerous place I've been, but it's the second most dangerous place I've been. The most dangerous being the market street power plant in new Orleans. So this photo is actually taken in pitch darkness. And what you're seeing down there at the bottom is somebody with the flashlight on their phone. And uh, did you have them light that on purpose to help? No, that was one of those times where there was just other people in there that I didn't know who I bumped into and talked to for a minute or whatever. And so what uh, what looks like light coming through the windows is there. There's actually not much light outside, if any, and it's just a very long exposure that makes it is. Yeah, lets that's a thirty second exposure because it was it was full full night outside. So you didn't light the shot at all. It's just the ambient light from the long exposure and a phone light at the bottom there. Yep, a phone light at the bottom and, and the the thing that's lighting up the curve going around the opening is moonlight. Oh, wow. So I'll have the photo in the show notes, but one thing I just love about this photo is the decaying industrial nature of it is clear. You have the oval open space going around that has just really textured paint chipping away throughout mm -hmm. the whole thing. And then I just love the the shapes, the that oval, the circles, and then the staircase sort of cutting across, coming down, and then stairs going all the way down, sort of zigzagging, and, gen yep. and just the industrial uh, decay. And so the composition and the light and the texture, all of it I just think is so cool. Thank you. I, I really like this photo too. And that's you know, I love that industrial decay. You know, I I love it. Some people like to take, you know, pictures of streams and mountains and stuff, but I'll take abandoned factories every single time. I think it's I beautiful. I agree. And to me, I guess I look at everything politically, right? But I see there's a politics behind that to me too. Yeah, I, I think growing up in starting in the 80s after the starting in the 70s, really, when they started to shut down lots of factories and in the Midwest, especially, but really everywhere. And you just started to get more and more places like this on the landscape in the country that I think represent something of a, a decline of the U.S. as uh, the empire that it has been. Yep. All right. So that's awesome. Thanks for your thoughts on this picture. Why don't we move into the other pictures then? I'm going to switch to a music picture. So we talked at the beginning about how you had been going to concerts had been part of the music scene uh, I assume mostly in the Twin Cities for many years and so this is a picture that was taken on the last day that the Triple Rock Social Club was open there was a big concert with several bands and a, sort of a blowout I guess before talking about the picture itself um, do you want to talk about your relationship to Triple Rock or to going to sort of punk or underground shows in the Twin Cities 
Well, I've been going to punk rock shows in the Twin Cities since I was 13 years old. And uh, 13, you know, that wow. ranges, yeah, that ranges from like uh, seeing shows at 7th Street Entry and First Avenue to uh, the Heart of the Beast Puppet Theater used to have punk rock shows. Uh, I, I saw MDC play at the Heart of the Beast Puppet Theater. I think it was called the Avalon back then. And then Fugazi was the next night, and I saw many shows in that building. And then there was all the basements and all the shows at the Speedboat Art Gallery. And, you know, so I've been going to punk rock shows, you know, my whole life. And I think that, I, you know, I got into the photography in 2015. And that year there was a there was a big music festival that was coming to town called Midwest Live and Loud. Uh, and it was like 30 oi bands were playing at the caboose over three days. And honestly, I was too cheap to buy a ticket. So I asked one of the people that was one of the promoters <laughs> if I could get a photo pass for it. And he gave me a photo pass for it. And I spent the, I spent three days uh, shooting live music in the caboose. And then all of the candid shots that go along with like off stage and, you know, the crowd shots and the people that were there and, and was like, wow, this is really fun. I'm going to, I'm going to keep on doing that. And so uh, one of the bands that was playing their victory is our friends of mine. And so I kind of, after I showed them the photos, I kind of unofficially became their photographer. And, oh, cool. you know, anytime those guys would play somewhere, I could just show up and, or let them know I was coming and they'd make sure I was on the list and I would have pretty much full access to whatever venue. And uh, so this last show at the Triple Rock, if I remember correctly, it was, I forget the first two bands, but the last bands were, I think, Vic, yeah, Victory, Negative Approach, and Dillinger 4. And, uh, and it was an amazing show. And I was lucky enough to only really be one of two sanctioned photographers that night. I didn't know that. You know, so the way I prefer to shoot live music is to be on the stage. I spent the whole night on the stage shooting the last night at the Triple Rock, and uh, it enabled me to get all kinds of shots that you just can't get when you're being crushed up against the stage, uh, <laughs> yeah. including the one that you have up. Yeah, so let me describe this a little bit. It's a photo taken from the stage, as Phil said. You can't see the band except for you see the neck of the bass guitar and the bassist's hand on the fretboard basically from behind and then you see a slice of the crowd and to me i see this and it looks to me like it could be a classical painting you know one of those classical paintings where people are sort of sprawled out or like you know with you know all these different expressions on their face but you have like a what looks like a woman right at the front with her face pressed up against the monitor and another guy next to her sort of pressed forward and someone sort of on top of them. And then you have sort of a crowd surfer who his shirt is pulled up and is like screaming with his fist up. And there's just so much expression and emotion and power in, in this photo. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear a little more about it. Well, that was that photo. And I, I know that that photo was taken uh, while Dillinger four was playing the song Gainesville. And uh, that, that hand and neck is Patty Costello. From Dillinger 4 and yeah I, I think that that I, I thought that it was really interesting that you picked that particular photo because I happen to think that that's the best photo I took that night and I probably took 800 photos that night uh, I love that photo because it really conveys it does convey what the crowd is feeling like 
that show was, you know, I've seen a lot of shows in my life and that's one of those shows that I'll always remember until the end of my life because of how emotional it was. Like the Triple Rock, I remember when the Triple Rock opened, you know, I, I went there to see shows and to drink like for my, for its entire career from the time it was opened and wasn't Blondie's on the Ave anymore all the way up until the last night. And, and a lot of the people in the, in that room were the same way. We'd been there for the entire lifetime of that bar and venue and seen so many shows and had so many breakfasts and so many cocktails and, and like that bar was the first place in the twin cities. I feel that was like for us, you know, like triple rock was made for punk rockers and scenesters and skinheads. And there was no place else in the twin cities that was for us. And it didn't matter, you know, what you looked like. And I don't know. I know, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. It was like, you know, finally a bar that's just for us where the bands that we want to see can come and play. And the, the people that we know and love are the ones behind the bar that we're tipping it, you know? So I think a lot of people in that room felt that way about it. And, and you can see in that photo, there's a lot of, a lot of joy and happiness, but there's, there's an air of sadness in that photo too. If you look for it, like, holy shit, this is the last time. I don't know. I love that photo. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree with everything you just said for sure. I only saw a few shows there over the years. I just wasn't going to as many shows at that point in my life, Mm -hmm. but the shows I saw there definitely, I agree, had that feel. And I would also go into the, bar next door you know occasionally on the west bank always liked the songs that would become on you know that just one of those few places where it's like oh yeah it totally like you said this this is a place that's like for for people who like the music i like and yeah they had the greatest jukebox ever man and i think it i think it died like a year or two before they shut down but it was like one of those old school cd jukeboxes and uh it had like everything from the Pogues to Cox Bar to Agnostic Front to the Bouncing Souls. And, you know, it, it was like, you know, go, you go to a bar and there's a jukebox that has all your favorite, you know, it's a jukebox full of your CD collections. It was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So why don't we move on to the last photo here of the three that I wanted to talk about. And this is a photo from a protest. This is a photo from the night that the protest went onto the highway, onto Interstate 94, over at, I believe, at the Cedar Avenue exit, and with the intention to march on the highway for one exit and then come up at the next exit. But then the cops basically kettled the entire protest on the highway, suddenly out of nowhere poured in hundreds or possibly thousands of cops from various uh, law enforcement agencies, blocked everyone in. I, I think maybe a handful of people were able to scurry and crawl over a fence to get out of the kettle, but very few. Almost the entire protest got trapped on the highway and systematically over a series of, was it six, seven hours that the cops kept the highway shut down, they processed and arrested the entire protest. And this yep. is in a context where starting back at the the time, I think when Jamar Clark was killed was one of the first protests where people went onto the highway to block. And and of course, there's a lot of debate about whether it's good or bad to protest on the highway. I, I think it's a very powerful tool to use for a lot of reasons. One important one be, being that those hi, that highway, in particular, Interstate 94, was built in around the 1950s and early 60s to and cut right through 
black communities, destroying a lot of those communities, particularly in Rondo and St. Paul, but also in Minneapolis, and for, with the purpose of allowing, catering to people who lived in suburbs who tended to be whiter and wealthier, being able to zoom past but not interact with those communities to get to their downtown jobs and then zoom back out, uh, allowing business to, to go on despite the poverty and racism, et cetera, that the people living in their paths were subjected to. And I think stopping that is, is a very powerful, a very powerful tool. And it, you know, so protests started to do that in, in the, at that time and continued to do that. And then this protest was, seemed like when the powers that be made a decision that they're going to put an end to this or, or attempt to anyway. And I believe Walls's quote was teach us a lesson. Exactly. Exactly. And so Ironically, this protest was right after the election when Biden beat Trump in the presidential election, but Trump was not conceding. And so the protest was for two things, basically one saying Trump out now, like we're not going to let you steal this election, which you would think would be a message that people like the Democratic mayor and governor, et cetera, would agree with and would see the extreme danger in the Republican presidential candidate uh essentially trying to hold on to power. And as we later saw on January 6th, uh, doing going to in even greater lengths to try to uh, subvert the will of the voters and, and hold on to power. But anyway, the other point of the protest was no matter who ends up being in office, we're going to continue the struggle for justice for families of people murdered by the police and on a range of other social justice issues that, as you know, those of us who have been in the movement for a while understand just because a Democrat gets elected, a lot of most of those issues won't change and the struggle will continue. So that was the context of the protest. And then you know which photo I'm talking about, right? That I have on the screen. Uh, yes, yeah. of the large scary man. <laughs> exactly. It's a large scary man. It's a police officer in full regalia. I mean, says police big on his chest. He has the the helmet, the the visor covering his face, the goggles, the nightstick and he and the boots uh, and the mustache and the mustache. Yes. And it, the photo is backlit. And that's something I just love, especially at these nighttime protests is uh, going for that backlit image where the shadows from this police officer. And then you can see sort of blurred in the background, some other cops behind him whose shadows also come forward. And so you get these very sharp, dark shadows coming towards you with this one cop in the foreground, just looking like he's ready to beat the living shit out of, out of you <laughs> if, uh, if, he, if, if he just would get a chance to. Um, and then there's some color too, which you know I believe probably comes from the police sirens in the background. So you get some yeah. purples, reds uh, that give some color to it too that's just beautiful. So uh, the, the photo is very stark. And I think going back to kind of the idea I mentioned before of the hero, ha a shot having a hero, but then also a context, I think you just hit, hit this out of the park with with this photo. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the photo and what was happening when you took it? And did he sure. then try to beat the shit out of you after you took the photo? I think this might be one of the more powerful photos I've ever taken. I I tried to hang it in my house and I, I can't because it still scares the shit out of me every time I see it. Because uh, I firmly do believe that that guy wanted to crack my fucking skull with a nightstick. And, and he was that scary. And what I will say about the photo is that I'm actually not as close to him as you might think because I shot that with an 85. Because by the time it got to be that late and that dark on the freeway, the only lens that 
I was consistently getting decent images with was my 85 millimeter 1.8 and shooting wide open. And so, you know, when, when those guys started showing up, because initially it was just, you know, blue shirts, you know, MPD down there, but then the state patrol showed up and they were wearing like full on, I don't even know if you can call it SWAT team gear. It was like full on military, like assault gear. And they had like silenced MP5s which was just terrifying to me. And and then you had like the MPD and their riot gear. And, you know, I was just like blown away by that particular end of the protest. And like, you know, look at all these assholes. We're having a dance party. There's a dance party happening. Uh, that was my favorite part is when they told everyone to sit down on the ground and wait to get arrested. And, and everyone was like, fuck you, we're having a dance party. And so when, once people yeah. started deciding they were going to have fun until they got arrested, that's when like, all the G.I. Joe guys came out and, you know, the, the guy I took that photo of was like sitting there bouncing his nightstick on his palm, you know, doing all that, I guess, for lack of a better term, cop shit. But yeah, I was just like freaked out by how imposing and how intimidating this guy was. And so I just walked up and took his photo and he didn't like it that much. So I took about six more and uh, and he got progressively angrier looking with each photo. And I don't think this is the the last one in that progression, but it's like, you know, number four or five out of six, you know, and I did that to a bunch of those guys that night. I w- I'm like, wanted to get up and get close and personal with them and get photos of them that showed their face and their, yeah. and their last name on their military fatigues for being state troopers. Like yeah. the people that pull you over for speeding on the freeway, you know, somehow have like, you know, futuristic body armor and silenced automatic weapons. And then on the other end, they had a bear cat and they actually had a sniper in there. Like there was a honest to God sniper with a sniper rifle aimed at our crowd, like with live ammunition in it. And just, you know, dude had like the, the hood over him and everything. It was just what they did on the freeway that night with their police presence and, and trying to intimidate the people that were there. Uh, was ridiculous and the the protest and itself would have shut down the freeway for 20 minutes maybe on minutes. one side of the freeway and then in order to as you said governor wall said quote unquote teach us a lesson they shut down the freeway for six seven hours as they arrested 646 people who to to this day two years later are still uh, going through the legal process from those arrests and also right. just to say it one more time this is a, a democratic governor arresting people who are protesting against Trump trying to steal the election from the democratically elected Democratic Party president. Uh, You know, it's just profound on so many levels. Yep. And that was also the first night we figured out our press passes were. That's right. Yeah, that uh, was the night that I had mine on me. And for whatever reason, I don't. Oh, because, uh, yeah, I decided that I was going to try and get arrested quickly and processed quickly so I could get out. I had something to do. I don't remember after, which I never ended up doing, of course. But so I presented myself fairly early on, you know, to try to get processed and get off the highway and showed them my press pass. And I said, I'm from media. Are you going to arrest me? And the woman who I said that to sort of froze and didn't know what to do. And so she said, wait a minute, let me let me check. So she went and grabbed some other person, I assume, one step higher on the, the rank uh, to make decisions. And he didn't know what to do either. So then he pulled out a phone and got on the phone with somebody a couple minutes later, um, came back and said, OK, we're not going to arrest people with press passes. So 
the original cop walked with me to the highway exit, which because we were almost off the highway. Um, and uh, and then I was able to help from off the highway with as they were sort of rounding up people and dropping them off and in places all over the city to yeah. try and get people home. But so, yeah, that that was interesting that they be. And, and that was I assume if we hadn't have already wouldn't have already seen all of the outrage about the treatment of journalists, including major media journalists, CNN, et cetera, being arrested. The protests happened when George Floyd was murdered. If we wouldn't have already seen all of the backlash against that, I have no doubt in my mind we would have been arrested that night. But because of yeah. all of the, the heat that the city and the state had taken because of the treatment of journalists, I think we were able to get off the highway. And I think you and some of the other photographers stayed on till the end or close to the end to document the whole thing. But, you know, I was only able to document the first chunk of it and I got off the highway. I was there until almost the end. And then uh, I, I, I kind of had a little powwow with Louie and Chris and they agreed that they would stay until like the very, very end and that it was okay for me to take off. Because the main, the thing about it was, is that when I left was when they basically said, all right, any and all press that wants to leave needs to leave now. And what it was, was clearly a move to try and get all the media to leave so that there was nobody there to report on what they were thinking about doing. And they didn't end up doing whatever it was they were planning because too many of the media people stayed. But I firmly believe that if we all would have left, that everybody on that freeway would have gotten the crap kicked out of them and they would have all went to jail. Absolutely. But, you know, and that's the other... I like taking pretty pictures and I like getting recognition for them. But the biggest, the biggest thing that we provide as journalists and as live streamers and as photographers is we provide security for the people that are at that protest. You know, the fact that we're there provides a measure of safety for the people that are attending that march. Absolutely. You know, and because obviously if the police would have started beating the crap out of everybody, there would have been at least 10 of us on the, on the freeway that night that would have been shooting nonstop and, you know, putting memory cards in plastic baggies and swallowing them. Yeah. That, I, I, w- I wouldn't have thought to do that, but Hey, that you got to do what you got to do. Right. You know, and that's, you know, that's also why I think that live streaming is the single most important advancement for independent journalism for uh, social justice is that they can take my, they can take my memory cards and stomp on them in the street and get rid of those images, but they can't exactly stop a live stream now, can they? Unless they have the equipment in place to do it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what would what advice would you give for somebody wanting to get more into photography, particularly movement photography, but maybe doesn't have the money to buy a lot of expensive gear? Like or more specifically, like if somebody just has a phone, let's say, or a cheap, you know, camera, how can they improve how can they take better pictures? with what they have slow down you know one thing about movement photography is that you know the energy around marches there's there's always an energy of urgency and uh go 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 and high energy and if you don't have equipment that can handle like high action stuff like that's built for sports and whatnot and you know just slow down and and compose your shots you know i would rather walk away from a march with 25 usable really good shots than 300 that are slightly out of focus because I was rushing myself. Uh, get to know your gear, get to know its limitations. Like, you know, you talk about those nighttime marches where you're using streetlights, know the limitations of your gear. Like I know on my Sony that I can shoot handheld at one sixtieth of a second 
and I can shoot two stops under exposed if my image stabilization is on and I can recover those images no problem, you know? But that's the limitation of my camera. Anything beyond that is, you know, you're getting lucky. So learn so your know, gear. Yeah, know your gear. Know what. Know how far you can push the dynamic range on your camera. Know what shutter speeds you can you can pull off and still shoot handheld. Uh, always make sure your image stabilization is on if you have it. Uh, if not, always remember the, the focal length rule where your shutter speed should always be equal to your photo length, your uh, focal length. To avoid camera shake and pay attention to your composition and do it a lot. Repeat, you know, that's really about all there is to it. Yeah, I think a couple of the things you said really resonated with me. Well, all of it, but think about your composition, I think is important. And you don't have to get a lot of photos. You can get even just two or three really good ones that will make a bigger impression. And that's something I think we've maybe talked about before. When you take photos at a protest, you get a lot of times now in the digital era, there's no reason not to keep shooting. And so you take hundreds of photos at, at a protest and you want to share as much of it as you can because it's inspiring and you want to get pictures of every speaker and you know, all the really nice banners. So you end up sometimes putting on social media a whole ton of photos. And the reality is most people are not going to look at 80 photos from a protest and so it's always that it's exactly it's always that internal struggle about for me anyway about you know wanting to document the entire entirety of what happened but also wanting to not post too many so that what i post is really the most powerful that people will actually look at them um and and yeah just the composition and having a hero of the shot having something uh like that sort of is is people can focus on I found that uh, using the rule of thirds grid on my camera for protests is a really, really easy way to make sure that your composition is on. You know, I, I know that the rule of thirds isn't sovereign in all aspects of photography, but I find that if I if I use that grid in my viewfinder while I'm doing uh, protest photography, that I'm able to get the compositions that I'm looking for without having to think about it too hard. And for folks who don't know, can you say what the rule of thirds is? Uh, it's a grid of nine boxes, and it divides your photo up into those nine boxes. And basically, there's to the right and left and up and down, there's the intersections where those boxes intersect. And those are areas that you want to have your subject in. And if you have your subject in the bottom left one, you want to try and make sure that there's something in the top right one. You know, And it makes more sense when you're actually doing it. But it balance it's it's what helps balance the photo out correctly so that you're not your subject should never be in the center of your frame. It should always either be off to the left or the right or up or down. It's hard to explain until you start shooting that way, but once you do it just becomes, you know, a habit and feels natural to you. It does to me anyway. Yeah, and I know even on my phone, if you go into the settings on the camera, you get the grid, the rule of thirds grid on your phone in the camera. So anyone can do that and it just looks like a tic-tac-toe board on top of the image. Yeah, um, exactly. yeah so I would recommend that's something anyone can do. If you have a, a phone that's remotely modern, you almost definitely can turn that on in your camera. And I'd really just go into the settings of your camera. You can do a lot more with phone cameras than a lot of people even realize. One really simple thing uh, is just sort of clean the, the lens on your phone camera. You know, they get crap on them because our phones are everywhere. And a lot of times you get blurry or kind of icky photos because you just didn't clean it off <laughs> and there's you know there's some really good apps too like uh there's an app called halide h-a-l-i-d-e which 
will give you full manual control over your phone camera and has filters and you know what have you but i've i've found that that's a much more pleasurable experience than trying to just use the the camera app on my iphone like you can even set it up so that the so that one of your volume buttons is the shutter button so you don't have to press on the screen yeah absolutely and also edit your photos that's something that people who didn't start with film cameras i think you know sometimes people just think oh if you edit your photo afterwards you're cheating and ever if you start if you were around or know how to do film photography you realize that taking the photo has always just been the first step of creating an image then you're when yeah. you're in the dark room you can people dodge burn uh you know do all kind of vary how long expose the the film to light uh, so you get a lighter or darker image all of that has always been part of photography an important part of creating an image that is powerful so you can use the, the the basic editing tools within the sort of default app on your camera are pretty limited but they're getting better but yeah like you said I, i'm not familiar with that app but um you know i use uh i just take something quick on my phone and when i edit it i use a free app called snapseed which could do a lot of what the more professional programs like Lightroom can do. It can't do quite as much because you're generally not shooting in raw format, so you don't have as much flexibility with the image, but you can do a lot, you know, if you just straighten the image, because usually it's not exactly straight when you take it with your, do some mm -hmm. very simple editing, you'll have a significantly better image what you get straight out of the camera. Well, anyway, all right, we're uh, almost double the time that uh, I had thought we were going to take. <laughs> um, any last things you'd want to mention before we close it up? No, not really. I, I think we've pretty much covered all of it. And, uh, and it's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for having me on. All right. That was our interview with Phil Ward. I hope the handful of you who hung in for the whole thing enjoyed it as much as we did. In future episodes, I may add more segments to the podcast other than just an interview. But let's face it, this episode is already long enough, so I'm going to call it a day with that. I'd just like to end with the obligatory message about how you can support this podcast. Most importantly, you can donate to my Patreon at patreon.com slash seagullphotos to help make it possible for me to spend the time it takes to continue to do this podcast. You can also follow us online on Twitter and Facebook at Red Lens Podcast. So until next time, keep organizing and keep documenting the fight to bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old. Solidarity forever. Red, 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 red.